Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. From a pot of tea to TT motorbikes. From a classic English breakfast to a full serving of classic cars. Bridge House Tea Rooms is the Northwest Premier Classic Car Meeting location for cars, bikes, tractors, and owners clubs. So no matter what your automotive appetite might be, visit Bridge House Farm Tea Rooms on their Facebook page or call John and Alicia on 07980-444-221 for show details and to reserve your own table and parking space. To the Backseat Driver radio show, a fine young fellow called Paul Woodford, manager of Cadwell Park clan crusader expert classic car filmmaker in fact if it's got wheels it's probably safe to say paul woodford is involved with it paul welcome to the backseat driver radio show brilliant to be here thanks for having me on now before we go into the clan crusaders um what exactly does it entail being the manager of cadwell park that's under normal circumstances when people can actually... right now not a lot <laughs> <laughs> so i'm in charge of the business locally so we're part of a big group so operationally i'm in charge of making sure that what happens there happens whether it's a big event like the british superbike championship or whether it's top gear filming there or whatever it is the operations are on me so when there's people turn up at the gate with their race cars the race bikes or they're here to enjoy a weekend of motorsport with the entertainment that goes with it then i've got to make sure that all works and i've got a great team of people that help me to do that i've actually been there a lot longer than i have so that helps how exactly did you arrive at that job it's a bit of a strange one i just literally saw it for advertised i was doing a lot of motorsport tv at that point and i just interviewed jonathan palmer at the gold cup at alton park a couple of weeks earlier and i just thought I could do this because although I've not got an operations background, there's a really experienced team there. And actually, what I think the place does need is, and most of all generally, needs a lot more kind of outward-looking media and a bit more of a presence. And we need to try and attract the audiences. And that really appeals to me. So I pitched that. So I basically went in and said, look, this massive long list of things that you need, I'm none of them, but do this. <laughs> and they bought it, and I'm still there four years on, so that's got to be a good thing. I love the place. I've been going since I was about three years old. It was a bit of a homecoming from that point of view. It's been a whirlwind. It is, but I think it's probably, at times, I might be wrong, probably England's least known circuit, but it is a very spectacular circuit. The fact it climbs, it dips, it drops, it's got the hairpins and everything else. It really is a demanding circuit to drive anything round, isn't it? It is, and you're fair in saying that, actually, because we don't actually run any of the headline car racing series which is what tends to garner the biggest kind of general profile so touring cars and things like that and formula three it used to Ethan senna and uh, martin brundle and nigel Mass, all those people have all raced there in the past but Ethan senna had a massive accident in the uh, one or so it was the 80s coming in the early 90s at the top of the mountain and following that they decreed that the circuit was too narrow for those cars that were getting wider and, and now in classic history three you can have them back so work that out but there is yeah it is unknown for that reason but chris harris when he came to top gear said it is 
one of these circuits in the UK to drive. And actually, if you know the circuit, it pops up all over the place in all sorts of broadcast media. It's in the film Rush and things like that. People won't know they're looking at Cadwell Park. <laughs> but it is, so it's one of the most unknown, but they're actually one of probably the most seen circuits because of the amount of things that use it for their backdrop. Yeah. But as you said, it is. When I've driven around it, and you get a, you get the vintage cars there, the vintage guys, it is a narrow circuit. But this is how circuits used to be. It's only the modern circuits that have become these ultra-wide things. Yeah, we're seven metres wide in most places. You struggle to get... You do get a car three at rest. Stock hatches into whole bends. For anyone who knows what I'm talking about, it's a spine-tingling thing, because they do it, but it's... You know, you got to be brave to go three at rest, and in most places, two at rest, but <laughs> that does make it a real unique challenge, and it's known as the mini Nürburgring. For good reason. It's a smaller version in terms of its layout and the undulations and the setting inside it, all the parkland and the trees and the forests around it. Yeah. Uh, just like the Nürburgring, the Neuschleiter. Now, as I said, besides looking after Cadwell Park, you are a you are a classic car filmmaker, and you are acknowledged. I think you're acknowledged by one of my previous guests, the one, the only Joel Mutton, as the guru of the Clan Crusader. Now, I'm old enough and ugly enough to remember the Clan Crusaders as production cars. I mean. Yeah. For the, those who don't know, what exactly is a Clan Crusader and what is this fascinating little story about this little two-seater, slightly unusual-looking competition car? First of all, I must say, Clan Crusader expert, if it, that would be self-titled, I think, but if Joel will hold me up as that, I'm happy to have it. I've only really got into them most recently. I've always been fascinated by them, basically. Um in the late 60s, a load of top engineers at Lotus weren't very happy with what Colin Chapman were doing. They had other ideas about what they should be doing. leader of those was Paul Hauser, who ended up starting the Clown Motor Company. And he took some of those top people with him to start it. And they came up with the very first composite monocoque production sports car. Yeah. Now, that might not mean some, it's something to everyone listening, but if I say that every single supercar that you see now from Koenigseggs to McLarens uh, to the top-end Ferraris they are composite monocoque sports cars nobody was building them in that way back then it was a racing car that was ahead of its time built for the road and it was built with this kind of vision in mind that you should purify the experience because a sports car needs to be a sports car and you should use the most advanced thinking to make it fun to drive and to make it competitive in a racing sense because some of the people came over were working on the Lotus Formula 1 program with people like Graham Hill so yeah anyway, from that point of view it was revolutionary but I think back in those days you launched a new sports car and it was a big deal these days people launch things all the time but people forget that the Clan Crusader was a low volume production car yeah like most things you could buy it in kit form because it could run the VAT but it was a production car it was built in a factory and it had a dealer network and they only made 315. There were a couple of sort of resurgences in, in later decades where they tried to bring the car back in different formats. But the actual Clan Crusader, give or take, about 315 were made with about nine or ten competition cars built on top of that big wide arches and used in various races and rallies. Yeah. Now, the one thing is, where were, where, I'd conclude the naming first, they were built in Scotland being called Clam. No, they were built in the northeast. So they were built on Crotham Industrial Estate in Washington, Newtown, which was a new industrial town as they used to build in those days in the 70s, with a 
resident residential area built to go within the schools and all that. Basically, they just drop these new towns into position. It's what's now in Durham. It's, it's basically, if you know where the Nissan factory is, that's um, in a very similar location. The yeah. factory still exists. It's, it makes plastic mouldings or something now, I think. But it was built in the northeast, and we should know it's pretty proud area. A lot of the people that are into the Clan Crusader are from that area or have massive ties to that area. You and I are not that far away yeah. from the northeast, so I suppose it's not really necessarily part of my fascination, but I do the fact that it's from there because the people from that area are pretty. Yeah. Now, the one thing that the little car was known for was its absolutely incredible strength. Yeah. And the fact that it was a competition car that didn't need a roll cage in it. Yeah, they made a roll cage out of uh, fiberglass rope. Quite an innovative, yet scary-sounding thing. But like <laughs> the story goes, they built these cars, and they survived the road car crash test with flying colours. Nothing of this kind had ever not crumpled at the front like the planet. Really, you know, barely was impacted in this frontal road collision test, which now the authorities couldn't get their head around. But it passed with flying colours, and that cast then that car that did the crash test went on to become the very first competition car for a <laughs> myriad of various... So the car actually survived the crash test and when they carried on to be being used it's as a car. It's nose cone, that was it. <laughs> Literally. Said, the pictures of it are fantastic. It didn't deform. It kept the occupants safe. In those days, that wasn't heard of for a, a properly built... I say properly built... A chassis-built car with a metal chassis, but for a, a composite car, I just... Yeah, this wasn't true surely because there's no strength to it there's no chassis people don't understand the engineering behind it and so that car which registration um lup was then andy dawson's 1972 manx car which he came second on the manx international trophy rally behind roger clark of all people <laughs> um, and to make they didn't have a roll case to get for the car and i was talking to paul who sir but i think you're getting on the show so i won't say too much because his stories are way better than mine but basically they went a few days before the, uh, the event to the FIA and said, look, we need a logbook for this thing, which is how all competition cars are eligible to compete. Yeah. So they had to prove that homologation and they built so many cars on the road. He said, we've got the car here. He said, it's strong enough that it doesn't need a roll cage. Why are you saying that to so the Motorsport Association, Motorsport UK now or the FIA? We don't need a roll cage. So they were very perplexed by this. He said, look, we've got this really innovative kind of fiberglass rope which goes through the shell. It's bonded in. It's, it makes it really integrally strong. Yeah. Uh, so that they got the FIA down to the clan motor company headquarters and they turned the shell upside down and they filled a skip full of... Now, I think it was actually metal fixings off the production line, although certain period publications said it was water, but either way, it was a seven-ton skip placed on an upturned shell <laughs> with just the strength of the roof and the A and the B pillars providing the strength to the car not to crumple, and it didn't. So the FIA had set that as their, probably assuming that it would pass, and said, yeah, no problem, you get that skip on top of there, full of whatever it is inside it, seven tons on top of that car, and we'll give you a logbook. And because it worked, they didn't really have anything to say after that, so they had to give the car a logbook, and apparently they pushed this, what was referred to by some people on the Manx that year, this plastic pig, to scrutineering on the Isle of Man in Douglas, past the Ford Works team with Roger Clark, past a load of other well-known rally drivers, Andy Dawson keeping his head down because they had this little certificate for the roll cage that wasn't a roll cage on the dashboard that had just been passed by the FIA. It's such a fabulous story. <laughs> I'm going to say you can guarantee after that the FIA had come up with something else because they wouldn't like to be defeated by the FIA, would they? Knowing how, no. they, knowing how those guys work. <laughs> no, and just no one could quite believe how strong and how competitive the car was because to get that car there, 
Andy Dawson had to switch the engine and running gear from his own rally Hillman Imp yeah. into the car. He worked for the Chrysler Competition Department at the time, so I'm sure he had no shortage of knowledge, experts on hand, and parts available. But still, it was a homebrew car with a bit of works factory backing. Yeah. And in the background to this, the reason Andy had gone down that project line was because he'd heard that a bloke called Alan Conley, so also from the northeast, um, from Wyndham, he, he'd actually commissioned the factory to build him a works car. So he, in the background to this, there was a proper car being built, which was LVX, which then went on to do the the Tour of Mall Rally and win it just yeah. a couple of weeks, three weeks after the Manx. So the car was basically taking over the rally world in one sense. Yeah. Now, the one thing you mentioned there was the Hillman Imp engine. Now, more, a good friend of mine, Rosie Smith, made her name rallying Hillman Imps, although she rallied many other cars. But the little Hillman Imp engine, the Coventry Climax derived engine, what tempted them to put that in the Clan Crusader, or was it always destined to have that engine fitted to it? A combination of factors, but I believe the lead factor was the dynamics of the engines, because it's on a slant, and it's very compact anyway. So if you've ever seen the back of a Hillman Imp, the engine's lent over. Yeah. It's almost on its side. It's compared to a normal engine, which is upright, say an A-series or whatever that you get in the Mini. So a lot of cars of that era were using the Mini or the Hillman Imp engine as their kind of baseline running gear. Yeah. But they went to both these places, allegedly, and the Roots Group supplied them with a the drivetrain, and it fitted a lot lower down in the car and allowed the car to have this kind of really low stance and keep the centre of gravity low and keep the weight down as well at the back because the A-Series, and I think they did try or at least look at the A-Series and later on there was a McCoy kit car which was loosely based on the looks of the clan that had the A-Series it looks ungainly at the back because it's so high because of the 1275 engine sticking up so high in the car yeah and so combination of those things but it was a well-proven competition engine it had been derived as you say from the Coventry Climax which you know had done the business in the back of a Formula the Lotus Formula 1 car so yeah. it wasn't unknown technology in those days and let's face it there weren't that many makers of engines that found themselves into competition cars that weren't a Ford or, a, um, you know, in those days of what was, you know, what's now General Motors, the big yeah. car makers. There wasn't the choice that you have now. It, at the time, must have felt like quite a natural choice. And really, the characteristics of the engine are really quite smart because it doesn't take or didn't take a lot in the time to make them extremely competitive and actually quite reliable, regardless of what people may say. If I badly maintained example since. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing isn't it history tells us that something's unreliable but actually history when the cars are 50 60 years old in some cases with these engines you're, you're picking up on years of bodging yeah yeah that is the truth. the hemp engine had a bit of a reputation for having shall we say i think it was its crank that was known occasionally for being a little bit weak but at the time people you can it's like you said you look back in hindsight and it's all right to criticize these engines for these things but in the day, people didn't really realise this or they couldn't come up with the cures and the fixes that they can come up with today for them. No, sure. And uh, there's a bloke I know really who was a roots dealer up in this neck of the woods up in Grillsby called Bob Armiger. He's a lovely bloke and he just tells stories about the times when he used to go down to the factories, people like Andrew Cow and another big rally name who was involved in the roots group engineering side in those days and went on to rally and things. And he said they go down with something as stupid as the met the the engineering part of the manufacturing parts of the fuel pump wouldn't work properly yes there was a bit too much metal on here and you couldn't actually make it mate up to the side of the engine stuff like that that just wouldn't pass a checks these days for quality control in those days it was an ongoing feast when a car was released you didn't want a car that had just been released and definitely didn't want a friday car because it probably didn't get together that well but <laughs> now they used the 875 sport engine which i think was later on in the imps um 
lifetime and it, it, it really was quite a well-proven kind of powertrain but actually it was ultimately the downfall because it was the supply issues from the Briggs group on top of the honorable crisis on top of the VAT that actually led to the downfall of the company in 73 so had they gone with a different supplier they just fell over themselves head over heels with loads of demand and no supply of parts yeah now besides the competition cars if memory serves the clan crusader you could buy it as you said you could buy it in kit form you could have it as a normal road car if you wanted couldn't it just a, a normal car to knock about him it was designed as a road car yeah it, it was never really the works cars weren't full works programs because they they never got that far into the lifetime of the car to really consider a full supported works program it was primarily a road car and that was what it was designed as yeah when you say kit these days we think of kit cars as things like low costs and robin hoods and things like that actually it was a what's known as a pool will correct you on this when you speak to him it was a build at home format so it arrived and i think motor car did i think on a magazine somewhere motor car built one it arrives on a trailer you've got the body shell all the furnishings all the fittings all fitted you've got the bits of the drivetrain, I would say chassis it's not a chassis, that basically the subframe just bolts on underneath and everything's ready to go basically you just plug it in, wire it up and away you go, so it was to get around the VAT it wasn't a lifestyle choice, do you want a kid car or a factory built car, do you want to pay an extra 17.5% or whatever it was back then. Because the interesting thing was, and you probably heard this, with the Lotus, they decided that if the person building it as a kit got the How to Put It Together book, they would try and charge them a certain amount of tax. They then realised that if it was supplied as a disassembly book you didn't incur this charge so the books of how to put them together you read it from the back you read the book in complete reverse because if you read it in reverse it sure it told you how to put it together and not take the car apart brilliant i know that but it makes total sense given what people are trying to work around it was just the wrong time to be introducing things like that and all these small manufacturers suffered as a result didn't they yeah has anybody ever thought of bringing these cars back they are doing, aren't they? With various ones. So DeLorean actually tried to make it come back, didn't it? Was it earlier this year, late last year? Yeah. Eventually didn't get its type approval, but there's another fascinating story. But they are, from time to time, you get these what are called continuation models. The Austin Healey that HMC yeah. company brought out, the Healey continuation, which was a Rover, basically a Range Rover engine, a V8 engine, to Austin Healey on a massive... Um, metal girder chassis and a fiberglass body which was an odd thing but strangely top scale if you've ever had a go with one you got all these weird continuation models the big manufacturers have jumped on the bandwagon now so Jackie were bringing out done the heritage E-types and the lightweight E-types and now doing the C-type yeah, like that. But people did try and bring it and people, three people, times. people are bringing like there's a continuation. The original W.O. Blower Bentleys, the Birkin Bentleys, are coming yes. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, heritage suddenly in the last few years become a massive thing that people will pay a huge premium for. So actually, that's where we're going with it. I think. But the clone was brought back just say three times really. Firstly, all everything was shipped out to Cyprus, and they started to there's a coach building firm out there that tried to sell them for a while to really take off then in the i think the early 80s it was brought back to ireland and they were built out of ireland with a slightly revised body shape but same basic principle yeah through a couple of additions They're a bit more modernized for the 80s and then later on the clover clan came out which was a alfa romeo i think it was alfa romeo was it now was it a i think it was an alfa sud engine actually to begin with but i think you got v6 engine ones as well from the 
I bet that'll be able to. I bet, I, I bet if you take a Clan Crusader and shove a V6 in it, that'll be an alarming little thing to drive, won't it? People stuck all sorts of engine conversions back in them to rally them, so you had a, oh, like Talbot Samba engine, not a lot, a number of people went Talbot Samba engine conversions, basically the early Peugeot 205 GTI engine, if you like. Yeah. And there was an XR2, Ford XR2 conversion on one that's away. And some people were doing it, but yeah, as I say, Alfa Romeo engine one was quite remarkable. It has big wide arches. It's not the Clan Crusader. It's got it looks vaguely similar in profile, but it's got a huge wide arch. It's all boxy. It uses a lot of Ford parts. Yeah. I seem to remember. Same as the Irish one. But so people did try and bring the clan back from time to time. Kit cars coming out these days, don't you? Small volume cars. Yeah. Do people buy them in great volume anymore? I don't think you'd ever buy, get anyone buying one of these cars to become a road car, which you have built yourself. No. But funnily enough, I was having this debate the other day with somebody. Until what's happened, I used to review a lot of modern cars. With what's happening, I've moved back into... Workers take me back into the world of classics. Now, I like classic cars. I comment... When things are normal, I commentate at classic car shows. And the one thing that suddenly dawned on me... Uh, I'm not the world's biggest fan anymore of modern cars. Jaguar have announced that by 2025 they will be a 100% electric car manufacturer because they will kill off every other car within the range. And I think that's the one thing about some of these low-volume cars. They are interesting. Yeah, a classic cars, generally, when you jump in one after having driven modern cars... The romance of it is pretty short-lived, I have to say, because you suddenly realise that steamed-up windscreens are no longer a thing. They <laughs> existed, and actually, yeah. the convenience of modern motoring is fantastic. But the romance, short-lived as it is there, and you jump in a classic car, and it's theatre. Yeah. You take this clan, or I went for a driving day last year with a company called Great Escape Cars. You have a range of cars, and I, the best one there that day was the E-Type. So I drove a 73 E-Type, and it's just fantastic. You you can't put that kind of experience into a modern car and expect to come anywhere close, even sporty ones, even really sporty modern cars. You still get have fun in a modern car, don't get me wrong, but you can't have any theatre, I don't think. No. We've lost that. Now, the one thing is, we were saying you're a classic car filmmaker. You you have made a film on the Clan Crusader, have you not? Which I can hold my hand up and say I have seen. Yes, I have, and it's totally different to anything I would normally have made. So, combined my two worlds, because we're in lockdown, as you say at the minute, we've all had to be a bit more creative about what we're doing. So, normally my films are me driving a car, not reviewing, because I don't think anyone needs to review a classic car. I think people want to hear the stories and see the, the theatre of them, and that's that's the way I picture it. But, so, it's normally me driving a car, lots of driving shots, lots of shots of the car out and about, introducing the car itself to someone, but you can't do that right now. I'd love to go and drive my car, Crusader, and I've done a few little bits at Kettlewell Park where I can around the circuit, but... I'd love to go and drive on the road, but at the moment we're just expecting not to. So we've got to stick with that. So I sat in my garage and I told the story of the 1972 Tour of Mall, which I mentioned earlier that Alan Connolly and Crawford done one, which was completely out of the blue to the rest of the rally world and just was a seismic shock that this car could just... Wonderful thing in, people still like the fact that a completely out of the blue, obscure little car can make an appearance in a major event and humble the big names. Yep, absolutely. It's the completely the underdog story, and everyone really captures everyone's imagination. And it would seem it still does because it's a totally different story I normally do. I've, I'm a rally presenter by, if you like, by an trait, and I combine that with the car stuff and sat in my car and told the story with a few sort of illustrations. And it's a mini documentary. I don't, I say that without trying to sound highbrow and like it's a really polished performance or anything like that. It's not. I just told the story, and it just. 
gathered so much momentum on Facebook mainly actually. Yeah. And I realised how much support and how much interest there is out there for not just the Clan Crusader, because most people who watched it probably hadn't heard one of them before, but in these kind of historic stories, like you say, in a world where you could go up against the, the establishment and you could take home these huge victories out of the blue that no one was expecting and you could do things that hadn't been leaked beforehand and that people were genuinely surprised about and those were days that people actually when you speak to people about the 70s that's the sort of thing that they talk about that they long for coming again yeah and but it's like you said the way you present a classic car film that's the other thing now I'm, I tend to think that films such as yours are what people want to see. The big polished productions by, dare we say, the BBC and the others and things like that are all well and good, but they have to start building things into them that a lot of people don't want. As we all know, dare we mention it, but Top Gear ceased to be a motoring programme a long time ago, and it's like it's three lads messing about. But I think the way you presented that film was excellent because you got across in a not being funny in a, a non-highbrow way what the Clan Crusader is. And I conclude from what you said, this is how you present all your other classic car films. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I've seen the Top Gear crew do what they do or post the on. I, I love those guys. And I think what they do is fabulous. It's great entertainment. In fact, we've got motoring shows that do entertain and read to a wider audience. It's no bad thing. But like you say, we've lost that kind of grassroots, this is what a car is all about thing. And you know, I don't, maybe I lost sight of that a little bit as well because my classic car films were about the cars themselves and what they looked like. And there was a bit of a story in there, but I was just absolutely blown away. I received something like. 10,000 views in the first day I'd been on Facebook and I just didn't expect that. <laughs> I'd stuck together in my garage for want of just doing something because in between homeschooling and trying to run the circuit from home and doing all sorts of other things, I felt like I was going mad. <laughs> Therapy. But thank you for your kind words, I appreciate that. You know, me asking, was it one man and the camera? Because were you on your own when you made it? Yes. Yeah, my wife, I have to end up producing something when I go to the carriage for these lengths of time and I leave because my wife otherwise wouldn't swan that's something to do. Ah, look, a car video. No, Vicky, it's fine. I'm okay. You don't have to worry about me. She still does. <laughs> but yeah, it was just me and the car and my iPhone. I just stuck it on the windscreen. You see, if you watch the video, the talking bits are literally me in different places around the car in my garage. So I'm doing another one and I promise to anyone who's watched it thinking, oh, God, he can't possibly find more places to sit in that garage because it's tiny. I am doing the next one at Cadwell Park. So when I'm there, one day I'm going to go out and film the talking bits on the silicate and put a bit more imagery into it and things like that. So is that the Clan Crusader again that you're doing? Yes, basically. I did the rally one. There are more rally stories, of course. The Andy Dawson Mount story, I think it's a part of that. But this one, there's another story about Johnny Blades another guy from it's from Whitley Bay another guy from the North East and he took on the works clan racing car that was so lightweight that you could see through you could see him sat in it and <laughs> wasn't painted and this thing took on the mod sports category which back in the day was well it was huge because the cars were monstrous you can imagine big wide arch things with big bulbous wings and bonnets and they just looked fantastic and this little clan crusader again came in with very few bulges compared to everything else just wider arches and again he wiped the floor with the competition and johnny not only beat everyone in his class but he went up against the alans and the big boys at the time in the most sports series and won the series at the same time as jumping out of the clan crusader at most meetings and jumping into his lotus 69 formula 2 car and also winning in that yeah and then at the end of this 1973 season having had epic battles door-to-door with some of the biggest names in that series. 
he was loading the car up onto the trailer and just dropped into his autosport magazine at the time or car and cars. I think he was also sport. He just said, oh, I'm probably going to retire now. First time in my life I've actually made a bit of money out of racing and I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to get on with the business. Rarity actually making some money out of motor racing, isn't it? Yeah, I think he'd finally got the work still from Klein. He'd, he'd the sponsors had come on board because of how well he'd done in previous seasons in the Ginetta. And this clan was something so new that, yeah, for the first time, he actually got some, some proper prize money about it. Yeah. Kicking one car out, but he just admitted, look, it's been a bit like a, like a Rossborg reg, really. It's taken everything out of me to win this year. I don't want to do it again, done it. <laughs> and it's just, the man himself was very flamboyant. It's very like Paul Hussier himself, his long hair, posh suits, and really knew how to present himself and tell a story while he was doing it. So he, as well as the car, came to people's attention. I think that's the thing with the Clan Crusader. You find all these people, John Frailing who designed it, like you mentioned in Paul, the people who were involved are as big a characters in their own right as the car has turned out to be itself in the classic car history and that's what fascinates me about this but nobody's telling these stories yeah so I think we need to do that because we'll do some otherwise and I've been delighted to have Alan Connolly himself ring me about a film I did Paul Husser from Clan all these people who are, can hold up as heroes in this tiny little clan world of mine that <laughs> we share with remarkably few people in the world that's <laughs> called me to give me their thoughts and stories and we're very lucky to be able to have these people around to be able to do that really because you can't really Colin Chapman and ask him what he thought about racing the Elan or how he thought about Graham Hill winning the World Championship those stories are now cemented and they'll only have to be told in one way yeah how long have you owned your own clans? since September so 2020 was a year of I was going to say a different word but I'll say sod it it's a, a year where you looked at things and you thought sod it I'll do something I've not really ever done but always thought of doing and I was at Cadwell Park I called Pete Richards who's a well-known clan racer in club racing these days he was at Cadwell as usual I went over a saunter around and took the titles of his clan and always fascinated with them talked to him about the car and he said you know what Paul you should just get one because you do this every year yeah you, just, you, can get, you should get a clan and that night I went home and I put a wanted ad on the Clan Crusader Facebook group and said look no one's got a clan it has to be as 70s as possible and some bloke sent me a message called Sam he said I've got a really brown one I'm not sorry about that <laughs> and it was perfect for what I wanted and it's taken a lot of work which I wasn't expecting to get to the point where I could probably use it now um, yeah then ironically I can't uh, but I've learned a lot I wanted to get my hands back here I used to build rally cars and racing cars and stuff and my first car was a Mark II Cortina when I was 17 yeah in the early 2000s which that was quite unusual for someone my age and I lost all that I've had kids I've had busy jobs and I just haven't had cars that I could tinker with or had any inclination to do so you lose all the kind of motor memory don't you in your hands and yeah. you lose the ability to think around little engineering problems and to work on things and to get jobs done on cars and I wanted to get back to that I have to I never ever want to see another donut in all my life unfortunately I'm going to have to explore a best drive shift so <laughs> I'm now back into that world of finding out all sorts of new swear words that never existed on a Sunday morning when I'm putting things on cars plus you've got a wife who will no doubt complain he's with that damn car again in the garage my wife has to be the most patient person in, in the whole of motoring she doesn't complain and in fact i put a video on which i'll send you after this on valentine's night i, I got someone called mike dent who runs in competition parts to put together these drive shafts for me and they're a work of art they are the most beautiful thing i can't put them on the car yeah they're just they're too nice <laughs> and so I, I did this little valentine's video where it turns out i'm actually sat with the drive shaft Valentine's meal, um, and, my, and everyone was like, "Crash, your wife was despair of you." I thought well, she, she was filming it. 
She's great. If anybody wants to see your films, where do they go? Is it? Do they just go onto the Paul Woodford Facebook page, or where did they find it? It's for the Clan Crusader Facebook page. I've got a Facebook. I, I never really ever thought I'd be directing people to Facebook. I never saw it as a kind of film platform, but that seems to be where people are enjoying it the most. So if you go onto the Clan Crusader Facebook page, it's pinned on there. Or if you go to carfilms.co.uk, that's where I put it. It's not commercial. It just sounds it. That's where I put all my, uh, my little reviews that I'm doing, and the Clan Crusader one is on there. So that's probably a better place to start because... Yeah. They're all hosted on that site. And one quick question before you go. Depend on the proviso that the lockdown is lifted, we keep being told as to whether it'll happen. How quickly do you think motor racing and motorsport will return to where it used to be? It will be I have every confidence, the same as last year, it will be a complete resurgence straight away. People will be straight out of the blocks because these cars haven't turned a wheel. People haven't been able to come out and enjoy motor racing. And it is one of the safest things that people will be able to do in this we now know is going to be called the new normal because you're going to be sat in acres of land perhaps with your own household in your own car without the need to mix and you can enjoy a day's entertainment within those confines and i think that's going to be quite important and that's something that i personally and i hope will be pushing is that you can do it a lot safer than you can watching a football match in a stadium surrounded by people or at a theater yeah those things shouldn't also be supported when they're back up and running as well but i think we'll get back to it really quickly i think you'll be surprised you won't be. I think people will be surprised generally how quick the industry does bounce back because there's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of people rearing to get out of the blocks. Yeah, it's like a lot of people have said to me, it's the need for speed and they've been needing speed for over 12 months now. <laughs> yeah, and yet all we could get was beer. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the irony is in certain parts of the country you could go and buy beer and as much booze as you wanted but you couldn't go and buy any underwear uh, yeah you could go and sit, buy beer surrounded by people no less yeah and you couldn't sit in the car in acres of parkland and watch a few racing cars <laughs> on a race circuit yeah it's a strange old world we're living in and it just got strange isn't it but I have every faith that we'll, uh, we'll get back to it I'll be just as strange as I was before but normality. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Woodford it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. The Backseat Driver Podcast is brought to you in association with Tim Nash and the Lombard Rally Festival, the UK's premier classic rally demonstrations. From the awesome Group B cars to cars from the golden era of rallying, go to the Lombard Rally Bath social media for dates and venues. Rarely beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tyres are the best in the business. And when it comes to tyre expertise and advice to supplying the correct tyres for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tyres team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk.